Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. And today we have a very important person in relation to drugs and the war on drugs, and that's Neil Woods. Neil's probably the most famous policeman in Britain because he's one of the few that's written a book, and his book is very well known. His book is called Good Cop, Bad War, which illustrated and highlighted the realities of policing the war on drugs from the perspective of someone who actually had to do it. And Neil will be telling us a lot more about that in a minute. But he's also co-authored a new book called Drug Wars, which has really shown in stark relief the the major problems that current drug policy has in terms of not achieving its goals. So Neil is on the board of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership in the USA and the UK, uh, which is an organization of policemen and other law enforcement figures campaigning for evidence-based drugs policy. So welcome, Neil. Uh, Good to see you again. And uh, congratulations on your latest book. Oh, thank you. Um, Good to see you too, David. I guess a lot of our listeners will know about you. Uh, Your book, uh, Good Cop, Bad War, was an absolute landmark publication uh, for all sorts of reasons, not least you coming out and and, and exposing what it's like to be at the absolutely the cold face of this idiotic war. Now, I remember you telling me about it uh, when we were together at a conference in uh, Cape Town. It took all afternoon as we wandered around the the harbour there. It took me hours to understand everything that you've been through. But could you kind of distill it down a little bit for for those people who haven't uh, had a chance to read the book yet? Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, well, a a shortened version is I was very young when I went into the police and... um, you know, I wasn't uh, one of these boys who really always wanted to be when I actually flipped a coin to decide whether I would go into the police or not. Once I was there, I got very wrapped up in um, doing the right thing, fighting the bad guys. And, uh, well, after about three years, I got roped into doing undercover work with the drug squad. The reason for that is because there was the mother of all moral panics. Uh, at the time, everybody was terrified of crack cocaine hitting the streets of Britain, and there had been for years before it actually happened, because the tabloids had been, you know, scaring people on a weekly basis about it. So, you know, that fed into funding for the police, and suddenly it was the number one priority, and that was what the Home Office said. So that's what created the investment of the sort of low-level undercover work that I, I started doing. And I, And to be honest, as a young man, I loved it. I did. I had a great time deceiving people and getting myself into dangerous scrapes here and there. It was very an exciting aspect at the time. Yes. It was, it was, and you know, and, and as a young man, I was, I was having survived my first threats with a knife or samurai sword. I was quite pleased with myself that I could cope with it, mm. and you know, that fills you with pride and fires you up one way or another. Um, But of course, I was very convinced I was doing the right thing. You know, I had a very judgmental view of anybody who had a problem with drugs. You know, I saw someone who had a problem with heroin and I saw somebody who'd made poor decisions and then had poor willpower to to not get out of it. It was a very judgmental and harsh way of viewing the world, but that is the way I saw them. So how did that change then? I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're on this roll of adrenaline for, for weeks and months, you know, doing, as you say, the good thing against the bad guys. And when did it start to change? When did you start to get insights into what was going on? It was by increments, really. I mean, but I think probably the most important thing is that in order to be successful and keep myself alive, 
as an undercover cop meeting the kind of criminals I was doing. I needed to behave in the right way and to learn about people I used empathy and I spent a lot of time listening to people and um, and I learned that people who have a problem with heroin tends to be a symptom of other problems and um, and for most people it, it tended to be that they'd had a very difficult childhood. Mm. And so spending a lot of time listening to people explaining this it, it seeps in to even the harshest of souls. I, well, I, I think I believe it should anyway. Oh, so you got to know what, what the other side of the coin was, so to speak, the reasons why people were taking drugs. And it wasn't just they were bad people, they were naughty people. These were people actually, what we might say in medicine, but they were kind of self-medicating chronic pain and distress with drugs. Absolutely that, yeah. And so many people mentioned traumatic childhood experiences you know this is long way before I, I read years and years before I, I read uh, Gabor Mate but it became quite obvious that this was a very a, a common problem with people so then you're sitting there and then you're sort of you want to be a therapist but you've actually got to be a cop and that must have created some interesting tensions in your mind well, it did. It did. Because even though I was beginning to understand this, it didn't mean I did the right thing because I was still driven by being in the police in this mm. disciplined organisation. And, you know, I had a job to do and gangsters to catch. So actually, I look back now and I, I, I call it weaponizing empathy because that's what I did. I used this knowledge to actually better manipulate people. Because from an undercover cop's point of view, you know, you, you manipulate the most vulnerable people. They're the most useful people to do so. So you were behaving a bit like a, like a drug dealer. You were forcing people to do your will in the same way as a, a Mr. Big would force a street dealer to work to their uh, ambition. Absolutely, yeah. And those vulnerable people were caught in the middle, uh, in the crossfire between both sides. It was a proxy war that was going on. How long were you part of that war? Well, I mean, I, I did that work over the space of 14 years. Um, that seems like an awfully long time to be in the front line. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, 100% of the time. It was sort of 50-50. You know, I'd do seven months and then seven months off, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But um, but yeah, it was a long time. And it, and it wore me down so that... Or did they have to get you out after seven months in case your cover was blown? Well, I, I, I would be sort of parachuted into any inner city area right. uh, for six or seven months because that's generally how long it took uh-huh. for me to gather evidence against all of the people that we wanted to. Um, so, for example, when I went to Northampton... The targets were the infamous Burger Bar boys who were using gang rape as part of their reputation building. You know, they were were genuinely vicious people. So I was driven to catch those, even though by that point I had very significant doubts about the role I was doing and and the benefits of it. I was still driven by this idea to catch catch the bad guy. So at the end of that operation seven months uh, there was evidence against 96 people six of which were the main gangsters who were the main targets and during that operation i think i i thought i was going to die twice uh, i was in constant jeopardy lots of vulnerable people also got arrested and roped into that operation and five counties worth of cops were back up to do a you know raid all of the houses and etc and then a week later after all the dust had died down the intelligence cop who kept his ear to the ground for that spoke to me on the phone and he says, yes, well, we've managed to interrupt the heroin and crack cocaine supply in Northampton for a full two hours. <sighs> and, uh, you know, that that was a real shock to me and, and it brought everything quite well into focus that what I was doing was uh, hardly productive, shall we put it that way. I think I've heard you speak about how 
when you destabilize a, a network, a supply network like Northampton, when it gets repopulated rather rapidly, there's also often more violence. Well, yeah, and this is something that police need to be honest about. And it's one of the great stumbling blocks that if police were honest about this, the reality of this, then we would have changed more quickly. Because I've spoken to police now all over the world, and it's exactly the same everywhere, that invariably, wherever police have success, it actually has a knock-on effect of more violent crime. Because, I mean, when the Burger Bar boys were caught, I can't say it's their infamous rivals, the Johnson crew, which were the people who took up that space in the market. But you can picture the scene, can't you? Jubilant young gangsters celebrating saying get put the call in we're going to make a fortune this weekend look what the police have done for us so what the police do is thin out the competition and that competition can be fierce and you've also spoken you know very uh, passionately about the, the the way you had to lie to people you befriended you know you, you befriended the very lowest level of the user dealer and you'd you'd actually become important to them, even though you were being deceitful. It happened many times. As I say, I, I looked for vulnerable people to actually manipulate. But there was one particular one in um, Nottinghamshire. And he was useful to me because at the time I met him, he was on bail for dealing heroin. And he was connected to the people I wanted to be connected to. So he was very useful. And I spent, I spent months with him. I listened about his life, his childhood, and got to know him very well. So even though he was a minor part of the operation, he wasn't a target, he got arrested as well. And I was told afterwards that when he was in police custody, he ended up being on minute-to-minute -minute watch, suicide watch. And the reason for that, as he told the interviewing officers, was that he thought I was his one friend in the world, mm -hmm. like literally the only person he could talk to. And, you know... When I heard that, and I thought back to just how much of a difficult childhood he'd had, you know, that I just it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was it mm. was um, emotionally traumatizing f for me, but obviously not as bad as uh, <laughs> anywhere near as bad as the traumas he he had. Quite, quite, and I think also that there were interesting tensions between you and other members of the police force when it became clear that. Uh, he was ceasing to be convinced that the policy was appropriate. But others were either not convinced or I think, am I not right in thinking that one of your colleagues was actually in the pay of one of the gangs? Yeah, I mean, it's the same operation actually in, in Nottinghamshire. I'd come across hints and intelligence of corruption a lot up until that point. And in fact, there were great safeguards to protect my safety. So at the beginning of any operation, because I would be provided by the East Midlands Special Operations Unit to a county and they would have to provide the support around me. Uh -huh. But they would all be briefed at the start. They were given a lawful order that they weren't allowed to know where I was from or my real name and they weren't allowed to ask me. Mm -hmm. I was sort of cocooned to safeguard me against corruption. But of course you can't because the corruption as a result of the drug war mm. is so ubiquitous. Mm. And I found this out myself. At four and a half months into the operation, um, I two of my backup went off sick and I got introduced to these two new cops. And one of them, when I shook his hand, the hairs went up on the back of my neck. You know, the, instinctively, everything about this guy was wrong. So um, I asked for them to be excluded from the operation and the, you know, the rest of them were great. I said, fine, if you're not happy, we'll exclude them. And that turned out to be very fortunate instincts that I had because he was an employee of Colin Gunn, the gangst, one of the gangsters mm. that Nottinghamshire Police was after. Uh, but the time I'd met him, 
he'd been in the police for seven years and he was being paid £2,000 a month on top of his police wow. wages, wow. plus bonuses for good information. And senior cops after that date, they, they've all said to me, well, of course, we know this happens. With this much money involved, how can it not happen? And again, if police were honest about the extent of corruption as a result of the war on drugs, again, if the public knew this, we would get change much quicker. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's not as if it's not been known, because I think... One of the uh, facts that I've heard in criticism of the the original American prohibition of alcohol was that was that alcohol prohibition led to every single policeman in America being corrupt, taking kickbacks from speakeasies, etc. So, so they had to bring in a new agency, which we now call the Drug Enforcement Agency, because everyone was corrupt. So, so for a hundred years, we've known that this approach actually does is very problematic for police. But we don't take much notice. Yeah, absolutely. But but there's an interesting mechanism at play here that people don't realise that police are really, really good at catching drug dealers. I think mm-hmm. we can accept they're really good at it. If you gave them twice the resources and the instructions, they would catch twice as many. Right. But they never shrink the size of the market. Mm-hmm. But they do change the shape of it. So where the police thin out the competition, which is essentially what we do by arresting dealers, we thin out the competition. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we're creating monopolies. Yes. Which is why you have, you know, uh, gangs expanding operations out of cities which using children could count mm-hmm. county lines. It's expanding monopolies. It's it's looking for new markets. So where you do have a monopoly created by by the action of policing, that monopoly then has a bigger share of the market, more value, which means they are more able to corrupt the system. Yes. So with the mechanism of policing it causes the corruption. It's not complicated, it's easily evidenced. Police intelligence will tell you this if you if you study it just just, just a little. And if again, if we if we were honest about that mechanism and explain that more widely, again, I think we might get changed quicker. Of course, in this country, we there are very 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 many different kinds of drugs which are illegal. Does the nature of the drug, or the type of drug, influence the way in which policing takes place and and the results? Do you think? Well, the kind of work that I used to do was almost always used for heroin and crack cocaine. They are the priorities. They are seen as the priorities because the evidence is very clear that people who problematically use those drugs commit most of the inquisitive crime, or at least half of it. Now, of course, I am more widely read and I understand it better. That's where it it becomes ludicrous because those are the people that we most need to take care of that that, that are caught up in that. And by taking care of them, that's how you deal with the crime, not by policing I think your insights and your commentaries, etc., have had a significant bearing or, or influence on the uh, people's approach to cannabis as well. Is that not right? Well, I would, I would hope so. But I think there's changing attitudes to cannabis anyway, and certainly within police. I believe that Leap UK, the organisation I'm part of in the UK, has, has had an influence on the attitudes of police towards police and cannabis. And if you look at great innovators like Mike Barton and, and the late great Ron Hogg, um, you know, they made the decision. You need to explain, I think, to the audience who Okay, they are. so Mike, Mike Barton is uh, the former chief constable of Durham. He retired just last June. Ron Hogg was his police and crime commissioner who, who died just before Christmas. But they made great innovations. You know, they, they stood by their principles and they followed evidence. And what they did decided to do is deprioritize cannabis from a policing perspective. And I remember being at a conference there in Durham when, when they announced that, uh, and not just deprioritizing cannabis, but even actually decriminalizing 
decriminalising the possession, effectively decriminalising the possession of drugs by, by diversion schemes. And their innovations have, have spread around the UK. Not everywhere, of course. It's a postcode lottery. But where there are forward-thinking, progressive police leadership, you know, you will find that people are not getting persecuted for the possession of drugs. I'm continually being confronted by people who believe that uh, cannabis is the gateway drug. And if we could stop people using cannabis, we'd stop them using harder drugs. Um, what would you say to that? Well, it's such a nonsense, isn't it? I mean, um, it, it, people use different drugs for different reasons. There's probably three million people use cannabis as for adult use recreationally in this country. And does that mean all three million of them are going to suddenly filled with the urge to try heroin? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just the basest form of ignorance to say that. If you understand why people choose to use heroin, then through that understanding you realise it's a nonsense, I think. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member... You'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Um, now, obviously, in your um, speaking and your writings, and your, you know, you've met people uh, from all over the world. I mean, where, where would you say we've got better examples in the UK? Well, I mean, um, my my favourite example to cite to people from, from another nation's drug policy is Switzerland, um, because since 1994 they've pres- been prescribing heroin uh, to prop- to the most problematic users, um, and it's been a massive success. But the interesting thing about Switzerland is they actually use British evidence to inform their policy. So in 1994 they left us behind, even though yeah. you know the hard work had been done here, both from from the British system when it used to be a, a, a reasonable standard thing to prescribe heroin also the work of john marks who did it mm. for, for for 10 years so I, I admire their policy in my view their hat system is not liberal enough mm. it's too strict and too clinical and doesn't take into account where someone might need rescuing from exploitation mm-hmm. so it's not liberal enough and i worry that where we are beginning to have hat in this country that, that again it's not liberal enough um interestingly in in cleveland the, the, it's, it's the police and crime commissioner's money which is paying for heroin prescribing in, in, in Middlesbrough, which I think is fantastic. Um, the fact that they've evidenced that as a good way to fight crime, which is the good, a good way of looking at it. So hang on, let's just go through this, just so everyone understands what you're talking about. So HAT is heroin-assisted treatment? Yes. And uh, tell us about the Middlesbrough experiment then, and what's the, what's the rationale for it and what they're actually doing? So it's, it's the Cleveland Police and Crime Commissioner which is paying for this. And it's basically, it's um, a clinic which is set up to provide pharmaceutical, pure heroin to a number of the area's most problematic heroin consumers. So the people who are really struggling, they they have struggled for a long time and they've failed at other forms of treatment. So they're giving it them for free, twice a day, following the patterns of Switzerland and wherever else they do that. It has rescued them from a dreadful situation of, of a life of crime and struggling. So they're no longer having to commit crime to support their habit. Precisely, which is why a police and crime commissioner is able to evidence that it's a good idea. That's fantastic. And how long has that been running? 
Uh, I believe it started in in October, I believe. So when do you think we'll, or have we already begun to see some positive impact on crime? I, I know it's been a success, um, which is no great shock. It's been a success wherever it's been, that uh, system has been used. But I think it'll be another couple of months before we get some some good evidence from that. It's, it's, also, it's going to be starting as well in uh, Birmingham. Oh, uh, the okay. PCC, David Jameson, is also doing the same thing. I also believe it's starting in Scotland. So we're going in that in that regard for heroin. We're going in the right direction. However, I am, again, still concerned that they're treating it too clinically. And twice a day isn't enough no, if no. you want it three times a day, is it? That's also true. I've uh, been having a lot of discussions with the media in the last uh, few months on safe injecting rooms, mm. which we still have... <laughs> enormous uh, resistance to in this. In fact, I think there aren't any properly, at least not for street users. Why do you think we have this such a sort of complete failure to understand the value of helping people? I know. It's, it's, it's really frustrating, but I've, I've spent some time in Copenhagen where they have, well, they have the biggest and best functioning uh, drug consumption rooms in the world, so, so I hear. And they are wonderful establishments. But if you speak to the people, the activists who made that happen, the street lawyers, street mm. lawyers, you know, they're wonderful people who really fought tooth and nail to get that to happen. And they found allies and there was good political leadership which made it happen. And then the resistance towards drug consumption rooms disappeared because once they were functioning, mm-hmm. the police were on board. Mm. The evidence is very clear that everyone's lives are made better. The kindness that is self-evident in, in the structures and the system it, you know, moves everybody and there, there's no, people don't speak against them now that they're in place. And it was interesting, actually, the last time I was there, just a few weeks ago, there's the local community Bobby, community police officer who walked the beat in that area. He had his leaving due, he's retiring. And he didn't have his retiring due in the poor or the police station. He had it <laughs> in the drug consumption room, in the, in the social part of the drug yes, consumption yes. room. And he invited all of the street people when he gave his speech all of the street people were queuing up to give him a hug so Mm. you know that is what i hope as part of the relationship between police and problematic drug users here in the uk do you think overall the police would be in favor of i mean are are they speaking out in favor of safe injection rooms now more than they were Absolutely. There are some very good police leaders in the UK who are speaking very much in support of them. And um, I think there are many police in the UK who are very frustrated by how slowly a lot of these easily achievable and practical Mm, mm. uh, reforms are moving, you know, because these are things that will make things easier for the police. These are things that keep people alive. And generally, the police want Mm. to do that. So, So, yeah, there's a lot of frustration, I think. But reflecting back now over what, you know, I guess over 25 years you've been involved in this, where is the problem then? I mean, if it's not the police, is it the media? Is it politicians? Is it the public? Well, it's it's the unholy alliance between politics and journalism, I think. Mm. Um, but not in a real-time sense. We have a very long tradition of anti-drugs propaganda because ridiculous drug stories sell newspapers. And, you know, having spoken to many journalists about this in researching drug wars because it's a great topic in the book. You know, journalists will admit that for a long time, drugs are one of the few, probably the only story where you can happily make something up <laughs> and you don't have to provide any evidence for it. And, uh, and, you know, and there are some famous tabloid stories about um, during the time of the acid house um, 
cultural revolution, if you can call it that, yeah, the yeah. dance music revolution. You know, the stories about LSD attached to fans and the ceiling so everyone gets dosed and all things, mm. ridiculous things like that, that that found their way into the public consciousness as a result of the tabloid press. So journalists do have a lot of blame and moralising politicians also are a great deal to blame as well, I'm afraid. There's also another aspect to this, which I, th I think anyone who's worked in, in this field has seen, which is that there's also a kind of racial element to, to policing drugs and that, you know, black and ethnic minorities do tend to be singled out for greater punishment or greater... Absolutely. But then we have to look right back and because the war on drugs has always been about racism, mm. always. It's in its DNA. It's, it, it's essentially American domestic racism mm. exported around the world with aggression. That, that's what the war on drugs is. It, there, was, there was no problem anyone using cocaine until southern black people were seen to be using it, yeah. you know, around 1919. It was, it was an extension of the Jim Crow laws. Mm. There, there was no problem with opioids until there were Chinese immigrants who were suddenly mm. out of work or in the 30s where Mexicans were seen to be stealing white jobs you know yeah. it's all even alcohol prohibition is about prejudice but that was Go that on. was backed by the Ku Klux Klan more than any other organization really? and it was about the the increased amount of immigrants who were Catholics because you've got Italians and Irish coming in large numbers and the puritanical Protestants were f fearful of a loss of influence so that they targeted the behaviors and what really? they saw as the behaviors of the immigrants and that's where prohibition of alcohol came from i hadn't, hadn't understood that so Thank it's you. always always about those other people oh. what those other people are doing so what should we be doing then neil what and what should the police the, the, or what should the chief constables be <laughs> campaigning for what should they be asking the uh, home secretary to do do you think well if there are any senior police listening to this i would always say to them please be honest. The time has come to admit that the best thing we can do about drugs from a policing point of view is to advocate for policy change because there is nothing the police can do in terms of actual policing tactics that will improve the situation. And it's only making the situation worse. You know, mentioned county lines. County lines, the exploitation of children, exists as a response to police tactics because they can't be infiltrated by normal police informants and it makes it difficult to be caught by undercover cops like me because when I caught the burger bar boys, I caught the adults. Yes, yes. And they learn. They got 10 years in prison. You know, you learn from that. Right. Children are the ultimate buffer zone between police and gangsters. So this is what police success looks like. And these are the kind of terms we need to be seeing it in. So, so the only way, actually, to protect the children who are involved in county lines, the only way to protect our young from the corruption and violence of the illicit drug market is to take the power away from organised crime and regulate them. Mm. Regulate each and every drug according to their relative risks and problems. That It's the only solution. I mean, of course we should decriminalise possession. It seems to me that that would be a, an uncontroversial first step given the phenomenal data we've, we've had in the last 16 years of decriminalization in Portugal. It would seem to me that, that it would be very hard to argue against decriminalization as a stepping stone towards a, a, a more advanced policy. Would you I, agree? I absolutely agree. And I, I think the evidence from Portugal is, is all you need. It really is. Okay, you, you, know, you get the argument that they're a small population, a different culture, and all this rubbish you get from the prohibitionist mm. opposition when they're clutching at straws to try and knock the evidence. But it is clear people less people die 
Yes. What, what better measure could you possibly have than that? There are less blood-borne viruses than any other problem mm. of health condition. So, yeah, it, it's a very straightforward move that we must take. And, you know, m and most reform groups, that's what they primarily campaign for. But my organisation, coming from a policing perspective, that will never be enough because it still leaves the market in the hands of organised crime. Yes. And, uh, and, and let's not forget, the people who want regulation least of all are those people making the most money Absolutely. from the current situation. Absolutely. And then, of course, when I discuss changes in policy, people say, well, yeah, but if the criminals don't do drugs, they'll do someone else. So you can never get rid of criminals. And I guess you have a response to that too. <laughs> I do. In fact, whenever I, whenever I do a speaking event, it's probably my favourite question. And uh, sometimes if there's a police in the audience, it's the police that will say mm. that, actually. Because there's this view that, you know, criminals will always do criminal things. That's why many police who really believe in the status quo want to keep those drug laws because it's a way of catching criminals. Mm. But that's the, but there's a great misunderstanding about what causes crime in that mm. uh, in that assumption, because crime is not caused by criminals; mm. it's caused by opportunity, and the greatest opportunity for crime in the history of humans is the prohibition of drugs. So take the opportunity away, and the crime will fall. By taking the opportunity away of the illicit drug market, you don't suddenly create other opportunities for crime. <laughs> you still have the same safeguards in place. And actually, the vast majority of drug dealers I've ever met would never consider committing another crime. Burglar house? Don't be stupid, they would tell me. That Because that's all risk and very little gain. Yes. Neil, that's a wonderful point in which to finish. So thank you so much for coming. It's been a, a delight, as always, to, to talk with you. And, and good luck in your new ventures, which I, I gather is to hopefully you're going to be turning your first book into a, a TV series. So very good luck with that. Fingers crossed if it happens, yes. Thank you. I look forward to seeing it. Thank you very much. Thank you.